0: Hello readers, my name is Jason Jeffries and this is a bookend brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Victoria Shepard. She conceived and produced the 10-part series, A History of Delusions, for BBC Radio 4. Her new book, is A History of Delusions, The Glass King, A Substitute Husband, and A Walking Corpse, which is published by our friends at One World. Victoria, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for, for having me.
0: It is an honor to have you here. And Victoria, this book is so fascinating. I'm hoping for our listeners, can you explain what exactly constitutes a delusion?
1: Certainly. And definitions are, are really important with this because it's an unwieldy subject. So I'm taking um, a sort of generally accepted um, definition of a delusion, which is um, a fixed false idea um, that you cling to that can't be shaken despite um, plenty of evidence to the contrary. So that that's the working definition that I've used throughout the book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Victoria. And you write that Unlike fairy tales, uh, delusions are for grown-ups. What is the difference between a fairy tale and a delusion, and how are they similar?
1: Oh, what an interesting question! I think I think the best um, way to to answer that question is to talk about the the Glass King of title of book fame. Um, he was King Charles VI of France, and he was publicly dealing with the Hundred Years War with England um, at the end of the 15th and um, 16th century. Um, and he was publicly dealing with this with this endless war, but privately he was worried that he would smash. He'd come to believe that he'd turned into glass. Mm. Um, and he's reported by the chroniclers to have wrapped himself in blankets and to have put iron rods into his trousers. When I first found out about this story is what actually got me hooked, made me want to be a kind of historical detective of delusions. Um, I I thought it was an absurd kind of scenario. Mm. Um, It has fairy tale connotations to it. It's a kind of, he's made himself into a work of art. Mm. Of course, glass at the time was a a relatively new technology. Um, And it must've had a kind of alchemical magic to it because people for the first time were having it in their homes, glass was in their window panes. And they they understood that you heated uh, sand to create this transparent, breakable, precious um, material um, and of course you know, the kind of fairy tale qualities of glass stay with us today the glass slippers and so on and there's a kind of magic to the material it's saying something very poetic turning yourself into glass um, and so I, I was kind of hooked the hair on the back of my neck stood up at this idea of this of this uh, of this king uh, thinking he turned into glass but when you are, when you sit with it a bit longer um, there's something very serious going on um and it stopped seeming so funny uh you can tell you know that was the question it begged me you know what was worth the humiliation which he which he got from the courts of europe um for this belief that he turned into glass. this this delusion this belief must have been offering some something very serious by way of what protection or or um some kind of some kind of um some kind of protection or strategy was going on here in terms of that that was worth a lot. And his belief couldn't be shaken. There's kind of life and death. And that's the the jeopardy was very real um, to this delusion. And that's so often the case. So what seems absurd, what seems whimsical, um, bizarre, when when you start to when you start to really listen to what's being communicated through through delusions, and it's, I think it's beautifully represented by Charles the and his glass delusion, you start to hear something which is which is not for children at all. Um, I, I came to, to understand them as very much as kind of communiques, um, smuggled, encoded um, messages, really, um, from people using their delusions to help them deal with very difficult realities Um, and so I suppose you know there is this fairy tale quality often um, to delusions but where they differ is that well I I suppose that you know fairy tales always have at their heart something very dark don't they Uh, and and something very urgent so that maybe that parallel um, maybe they they continue to have a lot in common but maybe it's not quite what you imagine it's not whimsical it's not it's not it's not for kids.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Victoria. You write that one persistent theme uh, with these people who you were writing about who are suffering from delusions is that something has gone catastrophically wrong. Why is this a persistent theme uh, with folks suffering from delusions, do you think?
1: Well, and, and you know, and looking, I, I, I follow the lives. I try to find fragments of the real lives of 10 individuals in this book. Um, they span different continents, um, different by different genders, um, it, It's over hundreds of years, but they do, when, when, you, when, I, when I put these stories together and I went on the trail of these 10 different de- delusions, people with, with fixed false ideas about themselves, I started to see um, patterns emerging. Um, and one, and they, and they, the characters almost started to talk to each other. It was, a, it was an ex- extraordinary experience, actually. And I could see there was a kind of solid, they seemed to function in a very similar way. And time and again, um, these people who, who'd formulated these incredibly kind of imaginative alternative realities for themselves had experienced a humiliation, a, a great fall um, in status. Uh, the, the most obvious, um, Kind of uh, d- demonstration of the mechanic is is the Napoleon. Napoleons. So the number of people who who turned up at French asylums um, long after Napoleon himself, uh, the real Napoleon, had died, there were there were tides of um, I mean streams, literally tens, and these were the ones that made it into the logbooks of people saying that they were Napoleon. And, you know, France had gone through an extremely difficult uh, hundred years, if not more. Um, and it doesn't it, it's it's quite simple to see what putting on the costume of Napoleon might give you if, if you if you're having a really bad time. You know, the, he's the poster boy, isn't he, for um, all conquering, you know, self-made man from Corsica who, who'd come to to rule um, much of the Western world. And. Um, is an icon of that and so you can see very simply what what a delusion and i'm not suggesting for a second that these, these are not necessarily in fact they hardly ever are they're not conscious mm-hmm. but that you can see that unconsciously um how the delusion that you are napoleon uh, gives you it's rather ingenious and simple uh, it gives gives you that status um mm-hmm. that you don't have in real life so that's probably the simplest but even when it's slightly more encrypted, um, you know, even even conspiracy theories. um, James Tilly Matthews is is the second chapter in my book. He was a tea broker in the the 18th century um, who made it to revolutionary France, got tangled up in the French Revolution, um, was kicked back to England just escaping the guillotine um, and conceived this extraordinary conspiracy theory that uh, at the cent- the centerpiece of which was a contraption that he called the heirloom, which was a a piece of equipment that was using magnetic rays. He said to uh, to influence the politicians in Westminster and bring the revolution to Britain. He'd also um, met uh, mesmer Franz Mesmer of of the kind of hypnotic There was all, there was all sorts of stuff going on in Paris at um, at the time that he was there, looking into invisible forces and the power of mag magnetism and so on and so forth so out of this springs this extraordinary conspiracy theory um and it's wild Um, he illustrates it it's it's extraordinary and bizarre there's a kind of gang of criminals operating these heirlooms all around the streets of Westminster but again you can st- if you really listen to it you can start to see that in a world of political turmoil that he, you know and he's he's again he's gone he's he taught himself he got involved with these um Uh, public figures to get himself to France he's a sort of self-styled spy and diplomat and then suddenly uh he has to run for his life he comes back lives in great in poverty in in South London with his wife and child um and a conspiracy like this um you can in in a chaotic world you can see kind of organizing his enemy um giving a clear narrative to to threat and to who's the villain and who's the hero in, in a in a situation and so again you can see the kind of potential psychological uh, protection that a delusion is offering somebody who's essentially fallen on his luck and is, is trying to accommodate in a conflict uh, all kinds of struggles and and basically poverty and, and just a really a really difficult life.
0: Yeah thank you so much and since you brought up uh, James Tilly Matthews I want to ask you uh, he was suspected of being a double agent and is also the first believed Documented case of paranoid schizophrenia, uh, Victoria. What kind of mental gymnastics does a person have to do to be a double agent? And do these types of mental gymnastics necessitate that one may have leanings towards being a paranoid schizophrenic?
1: So, so James Tilly Matthews has been has been sort of labeled in many different ways um, over the centuries. We know about him because. Uh, the man in charge of the treatment, as much as it was treatment, a big asylum in London called the Bethlehem Hospital, known as Bedlam. That's where we get the name Bedlam from. Um, loathed James Tilly Matthews. He was he was in, in the institution for years after after he conceived this conspiracy theory um, and wrote a book about him. Um, James Tilly Matthews was also, also a, a brilliant um, draftsman and drew the heirloom and, and the gang. Um, and uh, these these illustrations are, are in the book so that's how we know about him um and so he's been kind of interpreted many different ways um my my kind of um the way i view him now is is of a man who was full of what what some people would call kind of cognitive dissonance you know he he was living a very in a very very politically chaotic and unstable world um I mean, the terror after the French Revolution, when from one minute to the next, you know, the people in charge were suddenly in prison um, and vice versa. You know, I mean, as war always is, but the terror was was really quite something and something about, you know, a crisis like that where you you could you could be uh, have your head chopped off courtesy of the guillotine any second of the day. um, And you could find yourself on the wrong side 25 times a day, and there's something about those mental gymnastics. Uh, I mean, it's it's true. I think for all of us, just in a less technical way, human beings seem to find it very difficult to accommodate conflicted, conflicting feelings, ambiguities, ambivalence. We really, we really don't like it. uh, That kind of cognitive dissonance feeling. We'll do anything (laughs) to anything to to resolve those conflicts, and. so what was called paranoid schizophrenia um, for a while, that, that, that label's kind of fallen out of favour now. Um, but, you know, the, his conspiracy um, resolves that, doesn't it? In a way which, uh, like all conspiracy theories, is maybe a short-term help and in long, longer term, more of a problem because it can oversimplify things that are by they are, by definition, complex, ambiguous, ambivalent, ambivalence is kind of required. So there's there's a danger there, um, but you can see that in the short term, um, it's allowing him to, to stop the mental gymnastics. It, it's resolving a certain chaos in his mind and creating a story which has a plot to, that needs to be foiled you know uh, villains that need to be hunted down his he goes into the houses of parliament um before he's put in the asylum and shouts from the gallery in in westminster down to the government saying you know believe me this there's this plot to bring revolution to to the streets of london somebody's got to do something uh, of course he's promptly arrested and, and <laughs> taken away but there's a clarity to how he views the world um and i've come to understand that as um well, I've come to understand that. I think it's, I suppose that's the thing, is, schizophrenia would indicate some a mentality that is completely inexplicable, crazy. And so often, it's the, as is so often the case with delusions and, and very much so with James Tilly Matthews, if you kind of metaphorically pull up a chair and really listen to it, it's completely understandable. Whether it's wise or not, it's a different, different, different question, but it, it, you, one can understand it.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Victoria. Listeners, we're going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsors, and then I will be right back with Victoria Shepard. The Bookin' Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Victoria Shepard, author of a history of Delusions, which is published by our friends at One World. Victoria, I want to talk a little bit about Madame M. Can you tell our listeners uh, who was Madame M and what was her specific delusion?
1: So Madame M, um, I've loved I kind of fell in love with Madame M. She, uh, she's the first person that I, I study in the book. She was um, a French uh, housewife um, in the 1920s, who found her way um, into the French, um, one of the French asylums, there were many French asylums that were founded just after the French Revolution. And, and in the 1920s, she walks into um, the police station, and um, this is actually a couple of years before. So, in 1918, June 1918, she walks into a police station, uh, pops, her, pops herself up <laughs> um, at the desk, and, and says that she wants a divorce mm-hmm. um, on the grounds that her husband has been murdered and uh, substituted for a double. So. It's, it's got the quality of a, of, a, of a thriller or a sort of Edgar Allan Poe short story, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, she's promptly marched off um, and interviewed more fully. She meets her doctor, her Capra, who interviews her over many years to try to get to the bottom of this belief um, that she has, that her husband's been murdered. The plot thickens. She also says that um, children have been abducted all over Paris Um, and are buried in the catacombs which is where the the bones were the bones from the cemeteries which surround Paris um, became the cemeteries became um, overflowing uh, just off just before the revolution Um, and they dug out uh, great tunnels in, in what's now Montmartre the section of Paris called Montmartre to inter the bones and the catacombs um, were beneath the streets of the 14th um, arrondissement where Madame M um, marched about on her, on her daily business. And her, in her uh, delusion, she believed that these people who'd been abducted were in the catacombs. So it was a kind of Dante-esque image, isn't it? Of, um, of Strata beneath her feet. Another parallel world where people who, who, who others thought had died, um, Had In fact, she, she said not died, but, but been abducted and buried under Paris. And she became so Capgras wrote up the case of Madame M. It's a pseudonym, of course. Um, I did find out that her real name is Louise, but it's the traces of her of her real life for tantalizing and quite moving. Um, Capgras writes her up um, as the poster girl for his newly coined delusion, um, the illusion of doubles. Which is an absolute kind of pr- a primary type of delusion. Which were, had, the types of delusion have remained really consistent over over hundreds of years, and the delusion that that um, people have been substituted for doubles, loved ones, and people that you know, um, is one of those. And Madame M is the kind of the first um, recorded case um, of a delusion of doubles, an illusion of doubles, as they call it um, in in French. And um, yes, she she spends the rest of her life, as far as we know, in an institution. When I did some digging around, trying to find you know, this extraordinary uh, belief, you know, her husband hadn't been murdered at all. She was still married to him, he visited her. And when she was in the asylum, um, I found that she'd lost um, many children in infancy during the First World War and around the time that her delusion was triggered. So she'd experienced um, significant trauma. Um, And again, that's another recurring um, trigger for delusions that you can very clearly see. Um, People who, another one uh, similarly, or just as a a brief aside, but um, after the French Revolution or during the French Revolution, um, people who had escaped the guillotine, so in fact survived this kind of orgy of. of beheadings that happened during the terror, um, many many people who would in fact survived turned up at the asylum saying that they they'd in fact lost their heads and and more than that, their heads had been mixed up um, in the basket and they'd got the wrong one because you know one man said you know my my teeth were, were really good and look at the teeth in this head they're rotten so it's a very macabre um, image but but again very clearly related to trauma and Madame M's um life she was negotiating and navigating her life um married to a dairy farmer sorry dairy business owner um in Paris probably the intimation is not not very happy married and has loses several children in infancy and then of course the war is going on very close to Paris and it's it's out of this um really difficult and traumatic uh, life that that this um elaborate belief um in in substituted doubles and people who want she also believes that there's a team of people who want to steal her identity and have performed all kinds of operations on her face to to hide her true identity so this kind of crisis of identity um that she manifests um in her delusion that sprung out of of um a very traumatic and uh painful personal existence in Paris during during the First World War and and shortly afterwards. Yeah, she's a fascinating character.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Victoria. And some of this sounds familiar. So she believed that children were trapped and in danger. Is there a bridge between Madame M and QAnon?
1: You know, it's it's really strange because I the the um para- the, the, the conspiracy theories with james tilly matthews are much more obvious um but uh, a journalist friend of mine you know it's something i'd actually missed <laughs> in in writing the book isn't that interesting but yes there are very peculiar um rhymes echoes in the imagery that madame m's um belief i mean I, you know also that uh, that in her fixed false belief about about the substitutions, um, and I suppose particularly that you know there is a real threat, you know the war, um, and that but then in her um, you know and you can the rhymes speak for themselves. Don't in the present day where where real threat is being ignored and replaced with with an with an alternative structure of threats that a person with a delusion believes in. Um, ignoring the, the very real threats <laughs> that are around. So there are there are strange echoes, there are.
0: Yeah, absolutely, thank you, Victoria. And I want to ask one more question about Madame M before moving on, uh, because you touch upon something that um, I've written about before. You talk about the writing of Edgar Allan Poe uh, and Fyodor Dostoevsky. Um, I've written about the correlations between *Tale*, *Tale*, *Heart*, and *Crime and Punishment*, uh, which are closely aligned. You reference two other works. Uh, what are these works? How are they related? And more broadly, uh, why do you think that Poe and Dostoevsky's works are aligned on more than one occasion regarding content and psychology?
1: Oh, that's that's a that's a fascinating question. Um, I mean the. the the double, so the Dostoevsky and, and the double. I mean, the 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 um, instances of doubles in literature um, are plentiful and extremely powerful. Um, and of course, you know, it the idea of the double in Freudian psychoanalytic theory um, is always in the background too. The power, extremely potent notion isn't it? Um, the idea that of, of a double um, it's threatening to sent, to a sense of self. It's, it, you can sort of, it makes the hair on the back of the neck stand up, the idea of the doppelganger. Um, so in Edgar Allan Poe's um, sort of using the idea um, I'm sorry so sorry so Dostoevsky uh, using the idea within fiction, um, the double who who has everything that the, that the man doesn't have and sort of stalks him, um, whilst it's a it's a work of fiction, is is um, picking up on and, and that motif of the kind of the menace of of a of a the, the harbinger of something bad, bad um, that a double represents crops up in the psycho in this cycle in the um, in fictional texts uh, like those by Poe and, and, and Dostoevsky, and many many others, uh, as as it does in folklore, um, Norwegian folklore, uh, Celtic folklore, I, so many so many um, different uh, traditions have um, have a double or some kind of spirit double, some notion of the doppelganger that that crops up. So there's something. Um, meaningful isn't there about this image for something to unpack um, something that suggests menace and kind of societal crisis and you know it doesn't surprise me that this double Madame M that this case case study of um, illusion of doubles within the context of a kind of psychiatric categorization and taxonomy but it, it doesn't surprise me that the First World War produces uh, a benchmark, you know, a, a case study that, that, uh, that coins this particular delusion this, at that particular time of such global crisis. Um, and I mean, in, interestingly, and it's you know that it relates to cinema too, doesn't it? Um, stories. Um, of doubles in the cinema and people at at that time were for the first time seeing things on the silver screen. The idea that, uh, um, sorry to formulate that, let me try and just take a pause and think about that. Yeah, so for the first time the silver screen um, was in towns and villages that before that hadn't seen representations of itself. Um, The Phantasmagoria in France used ideas which was a sort of um, show a pre um, where people would be using lights and smoke and mirrors and so on for thrills there were these shows that were incredibly popular that would um, seem to resurrect people or seem to show doubles um, of living people uh, it was a kind of um, pantomime sort of macabre, um, circus acts really but, but deliberately spooky and thrilling. And the cinema was able to do more than that. So notions of sort of identity and uh, mirroring and so on were even more live because of of the birth of cinema. Um, And I think the delusion of doubles really sits in that tradition, which is fascinating because, as you say, the fiction and the real stories, the line between them in in delusion sits very much between fiction and and, uh, non-fiction, they're real, they're real case studies, they're they're people's real beliefs, Um, but they are in a very profound way, kind of um, works of art, imaginative creations of these real people. They have very serious and real meaning. Uh, They have very, very real context, but they themselves, are kind of works of fiction. They are alternative realities, um, and so you know you could look at then they're, they're cl- as you know Dostoevsky is is fiction, but uh, you know they don't feel like completely different types of writing. When 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 you're reading the case notes and you're reading the Double by Dostoevsky,
0: absolutely. Thank you so much, Victoria, and for a great. Um, book about uh, the effects of film and doubles, a great um, work of literature. I recommend Laughter in the Dark by Vladimir Nabokov, listeners, if you haven't checked it out yet. Um, Well, finally, uh, and listeners, this is a fantastic book, highly informative, highly entertaining, exactly what you want out of your nonfiction, But finally, Victoria, I wanna bring us back to King Charles VI of France, Um, a young boy king at the beginning of his reign. uh, As you mentioned earlier, he suffered from a glass delusion where glass was a relatively new um, technology that was appearing and he imagined that he was made of glass. My question for you, Victoria, is how, um, or I should say, is it the case that when a new technology appears, glass in this case, maybe we think of internet technology, uh, social media, etc. when these new technologies appear, um, does a uh, kind of domino effect of new delusions um, necessarily appear right afterwards as, fig- as people try to figure out how to grapple with these new things? Is that a trend?
1: I certainly think, I mean, you can see it very clearly with glass that when a new technology arrives that You know, glass has such a kind of unique profile qualities, doesn't it? Fragility, transparency, um, it operates um, very, if you think you're made, believe you're made of glass, it's a brilliant um, distance um, regulator, isn't it? It's a way of telling the world to stay back because you'll break me. but also I'm a treasure, I'm beautiful, I'm kind of magical. I've been, I've been created out of the heating of sand um, into something, into a real treasure. And so when it, you can see very clearly why a new technology like glass attracted so many people it wasn't just Charles VI of, of France um there were so many people um who, who reported that bits of them were turned into glass in the early modern period in Europe that there was a whole discrete category called glass the glass men and they turn up again they turn up in Cervantes they turn up um in fiction um all, all over the place in poetry and in plays um so when a new technology it seems to me and I argue in the book um offers something as as useful and as kind of um you know, glass can accommodate and amb- amb- sort of conflicting qualities. Um, it's a very, it does a lot of work for you, doesn't it? If, if you're made of glass. Um, and you can see, you know, um, in the Victorian period where concrete uh, was first on the scene, people presented um, saying that their guts had turned to concrete. Um, th- so you, you can sort of trace it, nanotechnology, of course, um, And and the the place that that has in in paranoia, which is the most common uh, delusion seen today and and has been the case, that's been the case for many decades now. Um, But the idea that, you know, the CIA are downloading your thoughts through a chip in your tooth, um, much more possible now than it was in the the 50s and 60s when (laughs) people started to get anxious about invisible forces. Um, And as I said, you know, James Tilly Matthews, the 18th century tea broker who got tangled up in, in the French Revolution, you know, as he shows, um, he, he was in Paris at the time, as I mentioned earlier, but, you know, this was a time when all kinds of invisible forces were being discovered. Um, it, it, genuine, Real invisible forces that you just couldn't see. Um, and so that's disconcerting, isn't it? And it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, that invisible forces take a, a major role in his um, in his heirloom, which is the contraption that's, that's emitting these kind of magnetic forces to influence politicians' minds. And it doesn't take a great leap to sort of see. Well, he's fascinating as a kind of prefiguring anxieties about technology. You know, I mean, the the, the internet and. Uh, and nanotechnology now we're we're so used to invisible forces and yet there he is 250 years ago kind of prefiguring it really almost almost um yeah seeming to to have kind of premonition of the power and the potential menace of technology and that becomes part of his delusion um I mean, it's a particularly tricky time now to, to be paranoid, isn't it? because, of course, the machines are listening <laughs> and converting your, your words into algorithms for advertising and so on. So things have got even more complex in terms of invisible forces. But yes, certainly you can trace um, new technology with the guillotine, another piece of her- her- horrific but kind of brilliant technology. That could decapitate people at a rate of knots with kind of beautiful aerodynamic. It's a beautiful, it's an extraordinary um, work of physics, isn't it? The guillotine, but it must have been both kind of awesome, impressive, and utterly petrifying too. And again, you know, the the, the people, as I mentioned as I mentioned earlier, the, the people who who believe that they've been decapitated by this machine, even when in fact they did, they hadn't been. Um, technology again showing showing up in delusions being kind of um embodied by a person kind of adopted um and again i i've come to see it as a sort of um self-protection in that in that i mean in sort of turning yourself into glass you're kind of yeah people pegging it's it's i've come to see it as very understandable that people would find um psychological use for kind of either for adopting a a certain technology into their body or into their experience or in the case of King Charles VI literally kind of melting into it and becoming a kind of walking poetic metaphor um so it's it's given me you know at the end of writing this book I came it's been wonderful because I've come I've come to be so impressed with the kind of imaginative ingenuity of people you know it, it really has um I think people are really, really good at doing that. And um, I feel great compassion for these people, but also, yeah, I'm, I'm impressed by the powers of imagination that people can use via delusions to help themselves navigate difficult reality.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Victoria. And thank you for writing this wonderful, informative, and entertaining book. Listeners, I have been speaking with Victoria Shepard, author of A History of Delusions, The Glass King, A Substitute Husband, and A Walking Corpse, which is published by our friends at One World. Victoria, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Once again, I would like to thank Victoria Shepard for joining me. Copies of A History of Delusions can be purchased from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks and Quell Ridge Books. Please navigate over to Libro.FM Audiobooks and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite, local, independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been booking.